today. Uh, first of all, uh, we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, then to Luke chapter 16, and finally to James chapter 4. Um, Deuteronomy 25, uh, Luke 16, and James 4. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry about that. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. By the way, weights and measures, that, that was how you did business in those days. Uh, you might trade a, um, a kilo of flour for a half kilo of sugar or something like that. Uh, and it's the measures that you used to conduct business is uh, what Moses is referring to. And then over into Luke chapter 16, this is just following on from the parable he's just told uh, about the dishonest steward. We're not going to read that parable, but we are going to look at what Jesus says following that parable, starting with verse 10 in Luke 16. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then finally to James, the fourth chapter. Uh, we'll read the first four verses and then skip down to verse 13. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Oh, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then to 13. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Boy, isn't that, that, that true for us today? What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. May God bless to us these readings from his holy word. One of the things that emerged quite early on in uh, the pandemic and the lockdown, 
And it initially came out of the United States, uh, as many things like this tend to do, was this debate about uh, between the health of people and the health of the economy. And so there were a lot of questions, you know, is it right for us to, to lock everything down, close down the economy? Uh, isn't it better for us to keep the economy open? And it doesn't really matter, you know, there's going to be some people die, you know, that's okay. And if you have a few tens of thousands of more die, then, you know, at least we've kept the economy. We've maintained the economy. Uh, and uh, this whole crisis has opened up a whole series of ethical questions that have always been there, but as a world, we've not have to, had to face these questions uh, quite so directly. Uh, I was talking with one friend who started to go down that path of, well, we need to open up the economy. And, uh, and I asked him, I said, are you willing to sacrifice your wife and your son for the economy? And that really brings it home, you know? If you're willing to let your child die so the economy can be open, and most people, when faced with that blunt of a choice, you know, they, they would clearly choose the life of their child. But there are a lot of complex issues here, and I don't want to overly simplify this debate. Uh, but uh, I do want to raise some issues about the economy. Uh, was the economy we had, was it the economy that God wants? Uh, I think in some respects, this virus has exposed uh, some things about our economy. And I, although I don't believe that God sent this virus, and I've said this many times, I think it came out of human sinfulness. Uh, human beings knew what to do, uh, but they didn't do it. Uh, and the virus came and, and so on. We don't need to repeat that, that litany of mistakes that have been made. I think at the same time, this virus is acting as a judgment against the global financial system, against the global economy. The global economy for a long time had been heading toward a major crash and a lot of turmoil. We all know what happened in 2008, and frankly, all of the foundational issues that were around in 2008 are still around today. Issues such as debt uh, and, and those, kinds of, those kinds of things. Uh, things had not fundamentally changed. A lot of people were still struggling. Debt was increasing. And many, many economists that I've been reading, that I've, uh, that I've heard from, were saying that sometime in the 2020s, we were going to have a major recession, if not a depression. And in some ways, this uh, coronavirus has just accelerated, uh, in some respects, that which was going to have before. Uh, and when I look at this event, and, and obviously I'm not in favor of the coronavirus, I wish it never had occurred, but at the same time, if I was going to design something to expose uh, some of the sinfulness in the global economy very clearly while having a minimum uh, amount of death, a minimum amount of disruption, I mean, this would be one of those things that has exposed a lot uh, lives have been tragically lost. We cannot ignore that. But at the same time, we cannot ignore what's been happening in the economy and what is going to happen in the economy. Uh, for me personally, 
I feel like we're going into a, a season of depression. I don't think this is a recession like the Great Recession. Uh, I think that this is going to be a depression uh, that will last for a number of years uh, before we recover from it. Uh, and many other economists are agreeing with me right now. Uh, I think the economy, is, uh, the recovery is going to be long and it's going to be slow. Uh, and so uh, we need to understand then how to live in light of this reality. Uh, we need to understand uh, how God sees this whole situation. We need to understand what is happening uh, and we need to understand how we should live. And so I'm going to talk about that today. Uh, then next Sunday, I'm going to continue the discussion on the economy, but I'm going to move more toward what happens post-pandemic uh, and how we live uh, in that season. And so hopefully I'll, I'll make sense to everybody that's listening. Now, as I'm talking about this, I want to admit up front that I'm going to paint with some pretty broad brush strokes. Uh, that is essential because if I had a very in-depth, very uh, nuanced discussion about this, obviously we wouldn't be dealing with it in a half hour on a Sunday morning. It would be taking uh, a lot of time. Uh, and I'm also sharing my own perspectives on some of this. What I see, uh, what I see God doing uh, in all of this, these are, these are things that I'm sharing um, uh, that I think uh, are from the Lord, of what the Lord is up to here. So to begin with, I think we need to understand why God considers the, the present economy an abomination. I'll let that sink in a little bit. Uh, do I believe that the economic system that has emerged globally right now uh, do I believe that God thinks of it as an abomination? I certainly do. Uh, I think God is inherently displeased with it, and I think you can make that argument biblically, which I'm going to try to do now uh, a little bit. Now, I want to be very clear here. There has never been a genuinely biblical economic system. Even in the days of Israel, Israel uh, did not really live in accordance with the guidance of God, the law of God uh, that we read today. Um, they weren't living it out fully. Uh, there's no other nation that's lived it out fully. I think the best that we can hope for uh, this side of Jesus's return is to have an economy that as much as possible approximates biblical guidance. And I believe wholeheartedly that if we align our economy with Scripture, no matter what nation you are, if we align our economy with Scripture, it will be best for everybody in that economy. The poor, uh, people who are not Christians, people who deny Christianity, uh, the wealthy, everybody would be better off in an economy that is organized around biblical principles. And that's, that's my passion there, but it must be stated, no economy is like that. There's never been an economy like that. There won't be an economy like that until Jesus Christ returns again. But we need to look at it to understand why God believes that this economy, why God would judge this economy as an abomination, why would he call it as an, an abomination. We need to look at the flow of the global economy 
since uh, World War II. And in some respects, what I'm going to say here is a bit Western biased, uh, and in some respects, uh, U.S. biased, because uh, most all economists would agree that since World War II, the United States has led the global economy, has been the forerunner of the global economy in many respects. I mean, people have, have often said that if the United States sneezes, the world gets a cold. And so there's been a really strong correlation between what's happening in the United States and what happens globally. That doesn't mean that everybody's at the same level. Certainly they are not. Uh, and this flow will not be 100% parallel in every country. It's not that every country lags behind the United States or is in front of the United States. Some, some go in front, some are behind, uh, uh, some are parallel. Uh, but you, hopefully you understand. So in the 1950s in the United States, after the war, the U.S. had what, was, what would be considered a production-led economy. Uh, the economy was about what people produced, what people would add to society, what they would add to the world, what they would ha add uh, to the globe. But that quickly began to change and we began to see a shift from production to consumption. So it's not about what you produce, it's about what you consume. And one of the clearest examples of that is something that you've probably never heard of in your life, something called layaway. Now, layaway was something that was true when I was a young man, uh, and that is you go into a shop, nobody had credit cards, uh, they almost didn't exist, and if uh, it, they did exist to a little extent, but you had to be very wealthy to own one. So nobody had credit cards. Nobody would walk into a bank and take a loan to, say, buy a new washing machine. But what people would do is they'd go into a, a, a shop, and they'd say, I'd like a washing machine. Uh, and so the shop would set aside that washing machine on layaway. They would lay it away, and then the person would make payments on a weekly basis or a monthly basis until they had paid for the machine and then they'd take the machine home. It wasn't like today where you put down your credit card, you take the machine home and then you pay for it. It was you paid for it before you took it home. And that was just indicative of, of how this is not about consuming things. People would still get the things that they needed for living, but this was about how you produced. But by the 1970s, this had shifted to an economy based on consumption. It's about what you consume. It's about how much you can buy. Uh, and another word of, for consumption is greed. Biblically, another word for consumption is greed. It's about wanting more and getting more and going after more. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and that, that system, that economic system, really existed quite strongly from, say, the late 70s, the early 1980s, until the mid-1990s. Now, this was fueled by advertising and branding. It was about advertising your product to get more people to buy your product. By the way, churches need to be aware of this. Because much in the world today, it's all about advertising and branding to get people in your church. 
and that orients people toward consumption. And so we started to consume stuff. Our, our GDP, our gross domestic, pro domestic product, became based on how much you were consuming. Now, it's wonderful to be consuming when you have all the money and you're consuming stuff from everybody else. But you know, the problem of consumption, there's only so much you can consume. If I started to drink the ocean and the ocean wouldn't, uh, would never be replenished, eventually I would drink the ocean dry. I might, might take me a few million years of living, uh, but, but there's only so much ocean I can consume. Uh, in our world, there's only so much gold you can consume. There's only so much raw products for plastics that you can consume. Consumption always has limits, and consumption always favors those who have money. So it's a system that's based on greed, and it's based on the greed of those with money consuming that from those who don't have money so that they can get money. But the problem is that those who don't have money then get conditioned on wanting to consume as well. And the consumption, it just spirals, it just escalates, uh, and it continues, and it only survives if you promote greed in more and more people. There comes a point in time when most of us would stop consuming. You know, right now, I, I have a car. I'm thankful for the car. It's a Skoda. Uh, it's a used, uh, used car. It was used when I bought it. We've had it for a few years. And I love the car. Uh, but this isn't good for car dealers. Car dealers and car makers want me not to love my car anymore, or they actually want me to love a new car even more so that I will get rid of my old car and consume a new car. Now, I don't need a new car. My car works perfectly. It's a great car. I love the car, but the, 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 the advertisers, the car dealers, want me to consume another car because they will make more money if I'm consuming. They don't make more money if I'm not consuming. And I remember there was a massive transition that happened in the United States. Uh, there was a bumper sticker that uh, spoke everything in the United States. A bumper sticker, if you haven't seen those, they put them on the back of the car. Uh, and, you know, in the United States, you have these big caravans. Uh, they're bigger than most flats are in London. Uh, and they'd be driving, and you see one of these caravans come along, uh, uh, you'd pass them, because they're not that fast, so they'd never pass you, but you'd pass them on the motorway, and it would, the bumper sticker said, I'm spending my children's inheritance. And that was a bumper sticker that really spoke a lot to that economic system. Now, the problem is, with consumption... Not only are there limits to consumption, uh, the amounts you can consume, but there are limits to the amount of money you have to spend on consumption. I mean, I don't know about you. I don't make a, a ton of money. Uh, I'm not a wealthy person, although I feel wealthy in, in my own right. Um, but, uh, but there are limits, you know. Uh, I could budget next year for a 100,000-pound uh, Mercedes, uh, I could put that in my budget, but I guarantee you next year I won't have 100,000 pounds 
to buy that Mercedes. I won't even have enough money to take a loan to buy the Mercedes and pay off the loan. I mean, it's limited. I'm limited by my money. Okay, so if you're consuming, that's a problem. So how do you fix the problem? You shift your economy from consumption to debt. So you still have the greed. You still want to provoke people to greed. But now you build on top of that greed debt. And in the mid-1990s, we saw a shift toward debt. And again, I remember a bit when that happened. Uh, When Karen and I were first married, uh, we wanted to get a credit card. We thought it might be helpful from time to time. The problem is no bank would give me a credit card. I was a young man. I'm a credit risk. Nobody's going to give me, you know, that kind of loan, especially I wasn't making any money. You know, I'm a student and everything. Uh, so what do we do? We put Karen's name on it. And, and everybody loved to give money to Karen or give cards to Karen because everybody knows women are more responsible with their money. They take care of it more. Uh, oh, oh, well, maybe that's not the case, but back then it seemed to be the case. Uh, and you had this thing going on uh, where, where people were doing this. Uh, and that's how we got the credit card. And then, then I could get a secondary card so that my name was on the account, but hers was first, you know, because she's the responsible one. She's the reliable one. But then all of a sudden, by the mid-1990s, that had shifted and anybody could get a credit card. I mean, back in the day, no idiot bank would give a student a credit card. That was absolutely ridiculous. Everybody knows that students didn't weren't reliable credit risks. Everybody knows that. But, you know, today, it's easy. It's easy. Why? Because they want people to consume. And in the 1990s in the United States, and this is sparking the shift to the next, to the next uh, uh, economy, in the 19, mid-1990s in the States, one of the other things that happened was they started saying, everybody should be able to buy a house, again, consume, Uh, And so what we're going to do is we're going to give people who can't really pay for a house the money to buy a house. Uh, And and so a lot of people were buying houses. They were buying large houses that they couldn't afford. You see, back in the day, what you used to do is you'd buy a small house, spend a little bit of money on it, uh, fix it up, then sell it, make a little bit of money, and then buy a larger house, fix it up, sell it, make a little bit of money, buy a larger house, and then by the time that you were in your mid-40s, you would have the house that you'd want to live in for the rest of your life, or at least until your retirement. But by the 1990s, they were saying, hey, young people, you need the same size of house that your parents have. So we're going to give you money to buy this house. And they were giving people money who, the, that they knew would never really be able to afford the loan. Now, why would you do that? Because the house was secured, the loan was secured against the value of the house, and every lender knew in that time that because debt was becoming so plentiful and money was becoming easy to get, that the housing prices kept going up and kept going up so that by the time someone defaulted on their mortgage and you took the house away, you would actually make more money on the house because the people would lose all their equity, and so you could do that. And so we had this debt-fueled economy 
where people were encouraged to buy more and more and more and more, which, as we all know, came to a crash in 2008. 2008, the, the crash, as we know, was spurred by home loans, by mortgages, uh, and by what was called subprime mortgages, which meant uh, it was a, you know, a nice way of saying, hey, we know these people can't pay for it, uh, and so, but we'll, we'll, we'll sell their mortgage on to you with some good mortgages, and you can make some money on this, this whole thing. And it was a big, it was a big scam in some respects um, that was going around. And then we had the big financial crash, uh, the recession of 2008 and 2009. And there was a shift. How the many governments were starting to say, how do we preserve the economy? How do we keep the economy from crashing? How do we keep it from going lower? Because had 2008 been left to run on its own, it might have initiated a depression back then. It might have initiated a depression. So the shift came, the shift began to move from there to, oh, by the way, I forgot to say about debt, the scripture there. Uh, if you want to know what God feels about debt, look at 22, 7, Proverbs 22.7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. I mean, very powerful. But from 2008, the financial system shifted again, and quite suddenly, and it became a system based on what the Bible would call dishonest weights and measures. We saw that in the text today. Proverbs 20.10 says, Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Now, many Christians are uh, used to hearing people say of things like homosexuality. Homosexuality is an abomination. And the Bible does say that uh, in the Old Testament. But do you know that the Bible says that dishonest weights and measures are an abomination about six times as much as anything else. How does God really feel about it? How does God really feel about it? He feels it is an abomination. So what happens? What's dishonest weights and measures? It's basically having different standards for different people. Different standards for different people. We saw this emerging with what was called quantitative easing. What's quantitative easing? It's simply printing money. You print money and you print more money. You put that money out in the economy. But what, what happens when you print money? It devalues the, your money overall. So if I have borrowed 10 pounds from you, for example, uh, and then you print 20 pounds and you give me 10 pounds, that 10 pounds you just gave me is worth less than the 10 pounds I gave you. And that's what was happening uh, globally. This dishonest weights and measure system came into being. You know, have you ever asked yourself over the last 12 years, why did the markets increase so dramatically after 2008 while the average person's wages have not increased at all. It's because when people printed more money, the expectation was that there would be inflation, so values would go up, wages would go up, and the like. But what actually happened is that the only thing that really became inflated 
were the stocks, were the equities. And that made wealthy people wealthier and poorer people poorer. That was the net effect. Now, again, I am really oversimplifying this. I know that I'm oversimplifying this. Uh, so please bear with me on that. But when you look at it, what's also happened during this time that's reinforced this dishonest weights and measures, if you watch, there were a number of scandals. One, there was the foreign exchange scandal, the Forex scandal, where people were trying to fix exchange rates so that some people would have beneficial exchange rates when trading, say, pounds to dollars and into other currencies. You had the LIBOR rate, uh, the interbank lending rate scandal, where banks were fixing the rate that they would lend to each other. Uh, and there's been a number of scandals that have come, come to pass uh, during the last 12 years that are indicative of dishonest weights and measures. Excuse me, another, th another thing that's happened is that there's evidence that the price of gold has been depressed, has been kept down, because normally the price of gold in this kind of environment would have accelerated much beyond what it has. So we have an economy that God would label an abomination. The scriptures are clear, this dishonest weights and measures. It could not continue. Something had to bring it crashing down. And that's why I could say that in some respects, the COVID virus is a, uh, a, a judgment that has emerged against this economy. Not that God has sent it, but it exposed the dishonest weights and measures of the economy. So we need to understand what God is doing in the midst of this. Okay, God didn't send the virus. The virus has exposed the economic system, has brought it crashing down, and you know, time is only going to tell how the dust settles around that. But we need to see what God is doing. I mean, one thing I think that God is doing here is He is destroying the economic idols in which we've trusted. There have been a lot of people that have trusted in rising equity prices, have been trusted these things for their security, and it's become an idol. Wealth has become an idol, and God clearly says you can't serve God and wealth. You can't serve God and mammon. You've got to choose who you're going to serve, and much of the world has chosen, much of the world who can afford it, has chosen to serve wealth in some way or shape or form. And so God has exposed that. God is also moving people to care for one another, look after one another as God has intended. God's purpose is for us to look out for one another. And look what's happening. Communities, neighborhoods across the globe are starting to look out after one another as never before. God is pointing people, God is pointing humanity to a better way to live if people will just look at it, embrace it, and, and go forward into it. God is also challenging governments right now, including the government of the United Kingdom, to fulfill their God-given economic mandate. Governments have a responsibility before God in the economy. They are to provide an economy with honest weights and measures. That's a responsibility. 
They are to provide an economy in which people might flourish, which all people might flourish. They cannot guarantee that people will flourish because there's sin in the world. But they can provide an economy where everybody has the opportunity to flourish. They need to provide an economy that protects people against dishonesty and greed. Right now, we're not doing that. The United States isn't doing that. We have an economy that makes people vulnerable to dishonesty and greed. Uh, And so they need to provide an economy that protects people against dishonesty and greed uh, and other aspects of human sinfulness. They have a mandate from God to provide an economy that promotes the rights of people, such as uh, the right to fair pay, uh, the right to stable property ownership, uh, and the right to live peacefully. They need to promote an economy that provides for these rights. And God is challenging governments right now to deal with this, and the governments that deal with this will come out on the other side with greater favor from God. You can watch this. You can see it. And God also is awakening the church, people like us right now, to fulfill its prophetic priestly, and kingly role. We have a a role to speak to the government, to speak to other people about God's perspectives, God's opinions here. We have a responsibility to help care for others. That's our priestly role. And we have a kingly role to see that God's kingdom advances during this time. And so we have this prophetic, priestly, and kingly role in our society as an agent for advancing the kingdom of God's loving rulership. And that's what God is doing right now. That's how God is working in our world now. That is what he is speaking for anybody who has ears to hear. And we need to have ears to hear. So how do we respond to this? What do we do now? And I'd like to suggest four things very quickly. First, we need to pray that God's kingdom would come and God's will would be done in the global economy, as well as our economy. We need to be praying about this. We need to be praying for wisdom for our leaders, that the ears and the eyes of our leaders would be open so that they would develop godly government, whether or not they're godly people themselves. We also need to renounce our friendship with the world's economy that has been. Now, frankly, most churches, especially churches in the West, have been all too happy to make friends with the world, to make friends with the world's economy. You see that in preachers who like to gallivant around on their big fancy jets, uh, on people who like to live in palatial mansions at the expense of poor grandmas. You see that all around. You know, It is time for us to renounce this friendship with the world. Now, that doesn't mean renouncing the economy. It doesn't mean renouncing money. It doesn't mean living in poverty. I'll talk a bit of what that means next week. Uh, But for now, you need to examine your heart. Has your heart been motivated by greed and consumption? If it has, repent. Deal with that in your heart right now, because if you don't, God will deal with you. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. Third thing, we need to exercise faithful financial stewardship. Surrendering your finances to God. As, As Jesus said, The person who is faithful in a little thing 
will be faithful in much. But the person who's not faithful in small things, they won't be faithful in much. The person who's dishonest in little things will be dishonest in big things. So how can God entrust us if we cannot be faithful with our finances? How can God trust us with more of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives? How can he entrust us with greater spiritual gifts? How can he entrust his church to move forth and advance his kingdom uh, if we have dishonesty and a lack of integrity in the way that we operate our finances? And I'm so thankful here at City Temple that we have godly people like Fadi and like Federico now who are overseeing what we do in our finances to make sure that we live at the highest level of integrity because that's what we want to do. That's what we want to do. Uh, And we all need to do that in our lives. And finally, and probably most importantly, we need to trust God. As James rightly points out, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I can tell you that I think we're in a depression. I can tell you some things I expect to happen, but you know what? I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, God does, though, and we need to trust God uh, because God is sovereign and God is watching out for us. And we have, here at City Temple, we have such a great example of that. You know, we've been talking about this building redevelopment for some time. And if you've been walking with us any length of time, you'll know that back in 2017, we expected that there would be a deal go forward to redevelop the building. But it didn't. And it was unrighteous. I mean, it really was unrighteous that this deal didn't go forward. Uh, I won't go into all the details there. But think about this. Had the deal gone forward in 2017, right now we would be ready to open a new building in an economy that could not sustain us, that would not sustain room higher, uh, in a situation where we might struggle financially. And what happened is that this development, by being delayed for two years, should occur then during some of the roughest times of the financial crises that we're going to face in the future. Isn't it amazing how God can use things that were so negative and so hurtful and so difficult and even then work through them in his sovereignty to look out for the best for his people. I see that in my life. I see that in the life of the church. And I'm confident that that's going to be true in your life. Trust God. He loves you more passionately than you could ever realize. And he's got the economy in his hands. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much that you give us insight into what's happening in this world around us. You give insight into what you're doing in the world around us. I pray, Father, that you'd help us to understand and to see what you're doing. And I pray that you'd help us to cooperate with what you're doing in our prayers, uh, by exercising faithful stewardship, by renouncing friendship with the world, by trusting you and submitting our lives fully to you. That's what we choose to do here today. We surrender ourselves to you because we love you, we honor you, we worship you, and we adore you. And we thank you that you've got the whole world in your hands, including us. In Jesus' name, amen.